right, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 10 today. And uh, the title on your screen is not the title of our menu for lunch. It is actually the title of my sermon. Uh, because when you look at Revelation chapter 10, you see uh, something happening that is both sweet and sour. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll come up with a uh, title to go along with the message that I think fits. How many of you know what a persimmon is? Anybody? A persimmon. Anybody? Yes? Okay, I see a couple of people shaking their heads. There's a picture on the screen that's going to be of persimmons. When I was a little boy, I lived, as most of you know, in North Carolina, and uh, our neighbor across the street, uh, we, we were friends, and we went to school together and played together and all kinds of stuff, and, and uh, she played a trick on me one day. Uh, she said, I want you to try a persimmon. I said, well, I don't know what a persimmon is. I've never tried a persimmon. And she said, oh, it's this fruit, you know, it grows on this tree. And she's like, try it. So I tried it, you know. I'm, she's, she's trustworthy. I can try it. Well, what she failed to tell me was is that the persimmon was not ripe. And if you have ever eaten a persimmon that is not ripe, ripe rather, it is the most sour thing that I believe I could have ever put in my mouth. You know those sour patch candy that you can buy? It doesn't even compare, okay, to how sour this was. It literally felt like my mouth was turning inside out. I mean, it was absolutely horrible. Now, once it ripens, I am told it is very, very sweet. But I have never tried a persimmon again since that day, and I guess I'll never find out. It looks it, it very, uh, I looked up the, uh, I just asked Google, what is a persimmon? And this is what Google said, an edible fruit that resembles a large tomato and has very sweet flesh. But Google left out the part of what kind of flesh it has when it's not ripe. I promise you, if you don't want to take my word for it, go ahead, try a persimmon sometime that's not ripe. I think you'll agree with me that it is anything but sweet and um I've never tried another persimmon since that day. Uh, and there are things in life that are both sweet and sour. And you can order Chinese this afternoon and order sweet and sour chicken, right? That's what it's called, sweet and sour chicken. There are things in Scripture that are both sweet and sour. The Bible says, for instance, in the Old Testament, that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It is a precious thing when God welcomes one of his children home. But it's sour to us. Because we have to then move on in life without that person by our side. And so... It's sweet for the child of God to be able to go home and be able to spend eternity with the Lord. God says it's sweet in his eyes, his presence, that he is able to welcome them home. I want to tell you, it's, it's very sour for us. I think about the fact uh, that God's word, the truth of God's word, as, as our, our, our brother spoke last week uh, about that, that fragrance, 
What did he say? He said, to some, it was a very sweet fragrance. To those that were in the victory parade, that were the victors, that, that, that incense, that smell of the incense was a very sweet fragrance. It represented victory. It represented uh, uh, life. But for those who had lost the battle, who were in the victory parade that were most likely probably going to be executed, that fragrance was anything but sweet to them because it meant that they were on the losing side. It meant that they uh, would most likely be imprisoned or put to death. And in this passage of Scripture, we see both the sweet and the sour. Notice, first of all, the angel who brings the bittersweet message. Look at verses 10, or excuse me, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And so as we continue on the events, uh, or as the events of the sixth trumpet are wrapped up in chapter 9, John says, I see another angel, and uh, it's coming down from heaven. Some people have speculated that this might be a, an appearance of Christ, that, that maybe this is Christ himself, but uh, the, the, the passage I don't think bears that out. Uh, it's not something, you know, that I think is anything worth arguing over, but uh, let's look at what we know about the angel. First of all, he says it's another angel. And the way that's worded in the Greek, it means that it's another of the same kind. And so this is an angel similar to uh, the angels that John has already seen here in the book of Revelation. And he says, but well, this is another one. It's another angel of the same kind. And so whoever this angel is, it's one of the same kind of angels that John has seen previously uh, as far as I can understand. And he says that this angel descends from heaven. Now, Let's, let's notice this very carefully. Uh, this is an angel that's coming from heaven. It's an angel similar to the angels that John has already seen. It's coming with this message. And the angel, the Bible says, is wrapped in a cloud and has a rainbow over its head. Now, we, we saw a rainbow around the throne of God when we were in Revelation chapter 4. You may remember verse 3 where the Bible talks about Around God's throne, there was an, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And uh, you remember God's sign of the rainbow. It was uh, uh, that, the, a sign that he put in the sky as a sign to mankind that he would never destroy the world again with a flood. And so Dr. Barnes says that this rainbow on this angel's head is suggestive that God remembers the covenant that he had made with humanity to not destroy uh, the world again with a flood. And I'm thankful that even in wrath, God remembers mercy. And so uh, regarding the angels, Dr. Barnes goes on to say that the angel's face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire, and both are characterizations that show that this being is reflecting God's glory in appearance, in purity, and in intensity. And notice this about the angel uh, here in chapter 10, uh, verses 2 and 3. Revelation 10, verses 2 and 3. It says, uh, he had a little scroll open in his hand. So this is talking about the angel. He has a little scroll in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, in verse 3, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, and when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And so this angel has a little scroll in his hand. We're going to learn more about this scroll in a few moments. He's got one foot on the land. He's got another foot on the sea. 
and the angel begins to speak. And as this angel speaks, it has such authority and such power that the Bible says that seven thunders begin to sound. And John is getting ready to write down what, he, what is revealed to him in these seven thunders. And notice what happens in verse 4. He says, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because this vision that John is seeing, you know, all these different things that are related to the number seven, seven trumpets and, and uh, all of these other things, uh, now there's seven thunders, and John's like, okay, I'm going to write this down, just like I've been writing everything else down that God's revealed to me. And God says, wait a minute, no, I don't want you to write this part down. This is something that I, I, I don't want. You've been uh, privy to this. Uh, God's allowed John to see this and John to experience what's about to happen with these seven thunders. But he says, no, I don't, I don't want you to record this. So we don't, we don't know what that is. We don't know what the th seven thunders are. We don't know what the th seven thunders represent. We could speculate, but that's all we would be doing is speculating what this is about. And, but we don't know. God did not give John permission to record it for us. And so in this vision of this angel in the first four verses, we, are, we see this angel. And you might see why some people think that this might be an appearance of Christ because the rainbow that was around the throne of God and, and the thundering voice. Uh, we heard earlier that when God spoke, his voice was like thunder and the sound of many waters. And, and so some people do believe, as I said earlier, that this might be even Christ himself uh, as the Father's messenger, if you will, because that's really what an angel is. An angel uh, can be a messenger of God. Um, and, and so in one sense, uh, some of us are angels, right? Uh, hopefully not fallen angels, but... We're angels in the sense that we're God's messengers. We're supposed to be giving God's message. But we're not an angel in the literal sense of the word that we find here in this passage of Scripture and other places in the book of Revelation. But we are God's messengers. We are to take God's message of salvation. We are to take God's message of hope. We are to take God's message of truth. We are to take God's message of righteousness. We are to take God's message of repentance. We are to take God's message that is found in God's word, and we are to be his ambassadors, his representatives to a lost and dying world. So in that sense, every believer is a messenger of God. In the Old Testament, we, we see the prophets. And those prophets were given the message of God, and then they were to take the message of God and then they were to share that message with their people. And so the prophets would speak God's message. In the book of Exodus that many of us have been reading, we find God speaking to Moses often. And uh, they would go to the tent of meeting and God would speak or he would go up on the mountain and God would speak. You remember the time that he came down from the mountain? He was glowing for those 40 days and God had spoken to him. There was another time that God had given uh, his commandments on those tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. And, and Moses were, was to take God's message that he had received, and then he would transfer that message to God's people. So in a sense, Moses was a type of prophet. In the New Testament, we see John the Baptist sharing God's message. Uh, we see the disciples being trained and then sent out, and they would go and share God's message. And then the Apostle Paul, of course, uh, did the same, and he tells us, 
to share God's message. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He said, Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Would that be a good verse for us to remember before we start posting things on social media, right? Uh, do not quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is the message that we have received from God. This is the word of truth. And so Paul is telling this young preacher, he says, Timothy, I want you to rightly handle the word of truth that God has given to you. And he says in, in the next verse, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Then he tells Timothy this in chapter 4. He says, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the what? word. Be ready in season and out of season. And he says to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I would dare say that maybe not in this city, but if you probably don't have to go very far to find a church that will tell you exactly what you want to hear instead of what God's Word says, instead of what we need to hear. And I pray that God would help me to obey the command that Paul gave Timothy, that, that I would take this personally, preach the Word, be instant, in season, be instant, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine, because the time's going to come when people are going to have itching ears and they're going to try to seek out what they want to hear, what makes them feel good, what tickles their ears, Paul said. In other words, what they want to hear, what, what inflates their ego, what inflates their pride, what makes them comfortable in their sin, because that is the day that we're living in today, that people are going to seek that out. And so God wants to use us to be those messengers to be the fragrance of Christ that we learned about last week, to be people who know the truth and live the truth and love the truth and share the truth. And that message is sometimes sweet and that message is sometimes bitter. It's sometimes bitter and it's sometimes sweet. So God calls us to share the whole counsel of the word of God, whether it's sweet or whether it's bitter, because ultimately it's not our message. See, it's not my message. It's God's message. And God's message sometimes is sweet and sometimes is bitter. God says we have to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. So let's look at the source of this message now. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. It's almost like you, you kind of picture somebody in the courtroom, right? 
They got their hand on the Bible and their hands raised and they said, I, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. We see this angel lifting his right hand. Uh, and, and he says, and, he, and the Bible says in verse 6, he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that, excuse me, in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And so the angel's saying, look, I want everybody to understand who it is I'm representing and the message that I'm giving is not just some angelic message, but it is a message from God himself. He is the source of the message. And, and, and the angel says, I promise to you, my hand raised in the air, in, in a sense, that this is God's truth. This is God's message, the source. And when we claim to be representing God, then we should represent God well. I think about all these false teachers in the world today that claim to be representing God and they're teaching false doctrine. And some of them think they're teaching the truth, but some of them know that they're leading people astray. And one day they're going to have to stand before the very one that they said that they were representing and they're going to have to give an account to him for their words. And so we've, we need to make sure that when we are representing God, whether we're representing him by our words, whether we're representing him by our songs, whether we're representing him by our actions, whether we're representing him by uh, whatever it is, we claim to be a Christian, we claim to be a follower of Jesus, we need to seek to represent him well. We don't need to put on a pretense and act as if you know, we're all that. We need to act as if he's all that because he is, not us. We're human beings. We fail, yes, and and we will not always represent him as well as we should, but we should seek to represent him as well as we can. Right? And so uh, the angel says, I swear by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it. And uh, I love what Warren Wiersbe says, that this oath that the angel's making, right, it affirms the solemnity and certainty of the words. And so we need to understand, we teach children's church, we're leading a Bible study, someone's preaching from a pulpit, uh, we have the opportunity maybe to share testimony or whatever it is that, that we understand that we are sharing God's truth or that's what we should be sharing and we're not the source of that message. God should be the source of that message. And how do we know God's the source of the message? When we speak the word of God. Not when we speak what we think, or not when we speak our opinions, but we speak the word. He is the source of that message. And again, sometimes that message is sweet, sometimes that message is sour, sometimes it's both. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll. Remember the scroll that he had in his hand? Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, 
but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Anybody ever experienced something like that? One time I ate a whole bag full of chocolate-covered blueberries. Boy, it was sweet to my mouth, but it was not good later. I'll just leave it there. And then, verse 11, I was, and, I was, uh, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kingdoms. So this is such interesting to me. He takes the, the scroll from the angel, and then the message is, you eat the scroll. You, you eat it. And he says, when you eat the scroll, it's going to taste sweet. It's going to have a sweet taste, but later your stomach is going to be bitter. It's going to have a, a bitter effect. I think there's some applications that we can make from this. Number one, I think it's really important that we assimilate the Word of God. What do I mean by that? Well, obviously, it's important to read the Word of God. And we don't literally eat the Word of God, but in a sense, spiritually speaking, we assimilate the Word of God. We read it, we hear it, we think about it, we meditate upon it, we study it. What is the context? What does it mean in its context? Uh, what does it mean? What did the author mean to the audience that he was writing to? What does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about myself? How can I take what I've learned now and then assimilate it or apply it to my life? And so the angel could have read what was on the scroll. The angel could have told John to read what was on the scroll. But the angel or, or the message said, I want you to take the, the scroll from the angel and I want you to assimilate it into yourself. I want you to digest it, if you will. And we need, spiritually speaking, to be people who digest the Word of God. That's why I love D-groups. is because it encourages you not just to read God's Word during the week, but encourages you to think about what you've read. And it encourages you to write down some things that you have thought about that what you've read. And it encourages you to think about, okay, well, this happened, you know, in the book of Exodus, or this happened in the book of Numbers, but what does all these snakes biting these people have to do with me right now? Well, I love what someone said. It says, when you're reading Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, dig until you find the scarlet thread that leads to the cross. I thought, oh, that's so precious. Because everything that was written aforetime was written pointing to the cross in one way or another. So let's dig into God's Word and let's assimilate God's Word. Let's just not read God's Word, although that's where it starts. We have to assimilate it. See, God's Word, and I hope you understand this, and many of you probably know this, but the reason that we have a copy of the Word of God today in the English language is, number one, because God preserved His Word, but also because there have been many people that have died, were burned at the stake, were executed, so that we could have a copy of the Word of God. I don't know if you knew that or not, but there are people that died, gave their life, so that the Word of God could be translated into the language of common people. 
And I don't believe those people died just so we could let it collect dust on a coffee table. Just so we could say, I've got the app on my phone. God's word needs to be read, yes, but it needs to be assimilated. It needs to become part of us. And, and, and God's word, Jeremiah talked about this in, in Jeremiah 15. He said, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. As Jeremiah read and meditated upon the word of God that he had available to him, he came to realize that, that he was a child of God, and he said, that brought joy to me. See, when you assimilate the word of God in your life, it changes you. The psalmist said this in Psalm 119. He said, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then 1 Peter, Peter tells us in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, like newborn infants, like a, like a newborn baby, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Why is it important to, uh, to assimilate the word of God into our lives? Because it is our spiritual food. It is our spiritual nourishment. It is what enables us to grow and to mature in our faith. Just like that precious new baby needs the nutrients and, and things uh, from, from the milk to be able to, to grow and, and so its digestive system can mature and be able to eat other types of food later, it's got to start with that milk. And Peter says that's the way we need to be. We need to be people that long for the Word of God. You think about how many times God's Word is compared to food. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says, God's word is compared to bread in Matthew chapter 4, milk in 1 Peter chapter 2, meat in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and honey in Psalm 119. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel knew what it was to eat the word before they could share it with others. And he says, Woe unto the preacher or the teacher who merely echoes God's word and does not incarnate it, making it a living part of his very being. So let me encourage you assimilate the Word of God into your life. Yes, read it. Yes, if you have an app that will read it to you, listen to it. But meditate on it. Think about it. Journal it. Ask questions about it. Pray over it. Pray through it. Assimilate God's Word into your life. And as you assimilate God's Word into your life, you will see that your life will begin to change. Your life will begin to change. And I would say, secondly, that assimilation is a choice. God did not force feed John. He said, John, take it and eat it. And then John had the choice of what he would do with God's command. No one is going to force feed you the word of God. No one can make you read the Word of God. No one can make you assimilate the Word of God. No one can make you be a hearer and a doer of the Word of God. It is a choice. We can encourage you to do that. People can be an example to you to do that, but ultimately it comes down to, am I going to take the time to eat, spiritually speaking, the Word of God? We've got to show up to the table, right? I mean, Tony could 
make this fabulous meal for all of us, which I'm sure he's thinking about doing. But it wouldn't do any of us any good if we didn't show up to the table. He could talk about how beautiful it looked. He could take pictures, and Marie could post them on Instagram and Facebook. and say, man, that's a beautiful meal. I mean, th those rolls just look so appetizing, and he's got real butter on the table, and he's got that brisket that's just... That's just done just perfectly. I mean, everything is there, and we can look about it. We can look at it, and we can talk about it, and we can tweet about it, and we can do all the. But it doesn't do us any good if we don't come to the table. And and God has a spiritual meal for us, waiting to feed us, waiting to nourish us, waiting to help us. But if we don't come to the table, if we don't make the choice to eat from the Word of God then we're going to be spiritually malnourished. And so we need to show up to the table. And then thirdly, assimilation will make a difference. It will make a difference. John says that when he ate the scroll, it tasted sweet. It was sweet as honey, and you can't get a whole lot sweeter than that, right? I'm going to say something to you. The Word of God is not tasteless. It's not tasteless. To John, it tasted sweet. Jeremiah, uh, the psalmist, said it was sweet. We have God's sweet promises. We have sweet reminders of God's grace and mercy and his goodness, the sweetness of Christ's resurrection and the promise of our own, the sweet promise of heaven where there'll be no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death. But the word of God is also bitter. There's bitter warnings and bitter prophecies of judgment. We learn about the sweetness of eternal life, but we also learn about the bitterness of eternal death. Again, Warren Wearsby said that God's Word contains sweet promises and assurances, but it contains bitter warnings and prophecies of judgment. And the Christian bears witness of both life and death. While the faithful minister will declare all of God's counsel, he will do not dilute the message of God simply to please his listeners. And even in recent days, I've watched this happen in people's lives. And for some, God's word is sweet, and individuals can listen to the same truth, and this other people that listen to the very same truth think it's bitter. And for some of us, it's bittersweet, right? Sweet and sour, sweet and bitter. And, and that's the way God's word is. It's comforting but it's also convicting. It's, it weakens us. In other words, it, it shows us uh, without Christ where we would be and, and, and what we are without Christ, but it strengthens us because it shows us who we are in Christ and what we can do through Christ. It reveals the hopelessness of our condition, but it also gives us hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to think about as we leave today is that we have the responsibility as believers to share the sweet and the sour, to share the sweet and the bitter, to share God's truth and all of God's truth.
We cannot compromise the truth. We cannot water down the truth to make it more palatable. We must share the word of God regardless of how others may receive it. And I believe if you're really going to assimilate God's word into your life the way that you need to, you first of all need to make sure that you've assimilated Christ into your life. Because see, he is the living word. See, I don't believe we'll ever really grasp the written word the way that we need to until we have first of all grasped the living word, the incarnate word. The Bible says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And so He is the Word. We need, to, we need to trust Christ. We need to receive Christ into our lives as the living Word, and then He implants His Spirit in us, the author of the written Word, so that we can have discernment and understanding of the written Word. That's why unsaved people have a really hard time. I mean, sometimes as saved people, we had a hard, have a hard time. But if unsaved people have an even a greater time, or a greater difficulty, I should say, in discerning and understanding the Word of God because they don't know the author. But when we know Christ and the Spirit of God is living in us, we always have the author of this with us. So he will take the truth of the Word of God and he will begin to use it to shape us and transform us. And we will be uh, uh, transformed into being more and more of who Christ desires us to be for his glory. And so you, do you know him today? Do you know the living word? Maybe that's why you don't have an appetite for the written word. Because you don't know the living word. I believe if we know the living word although that appetite may sometimes be suppressed by other things, I believe it will be there. We'll have a desire to know him more. We'll have a desire to read. When I worked at Camp Jacob as a, a, after my freshman year of college, I worked as a Christian counselor at a camp in Virginia, and uh, this was the days before texting guys. I know it's hard to believe in cell phones and all those kind of things. But every day, Miss Michelle, we weren't married then, but we were dating. Every day I would run up the hill to check the mailbox. Because she would send me a letter. And those envelopes had flowers on them. And she always sprayed some smelly stuff on them. And every day I'd run up the hill to check the mail because I knew just about every day there was going to be a letter in that mailbox from somebody who loved me. Somebody who missed me. I was excited. Well, did you know that the creator of the universe, your heavenly father, the one who sent his son to die for you, has written you and I a letter. He wants to commune with us. He wants to fellowship with us. He wants us to grow. He wants, us, he wants to feed us. He wants to nourish us. You're in a relationship with someone that's growing and loving and maturing. But you don't want to be around them. You don't want to spend time with them. You don't want to hear from them. Is that relationship really healthy? If that would be the case? Probably not. 
So maybe we know him, but maybe our relationship isn't as healthy as it needs to be. Maybe we've suppressed that spiritual appetite with, with empty calories, with other things, spiritually speaking. Maybe we need to ask God to rekindle that first love in our hearts today. Some of you were here last week for our baptism. You saw two people follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And some of you have been kind of on the fence about whether or not you should get baptized. Well, if you know Him, you know Him as your personal Lord and Savior, you should follow Him in baptism. That's a, an outward symbol of the inward transformation that's taking place in your life. And if you know Him, and you've been baptized, and we want to encourage you to consider being a member of Flagship Church. We would love the opportunity to talk to you about that.